0: And this is View of the Valleys podcast, episode 16 with T.J. Hoover and Chris Smith. T.J., how you doing?
1: I'm doing well. I'm excited about our guest today, you know, one of my uh, childhood heroes, if you will, and Coach Lusk, and I followed his footsteps, I guess you'd say, of going to SIU Carbondale with him. I watched him very closely when he was at Missouri State, and just a guy that, you know, I got to see his work ethic up close, and I've seen how that's paid off for him. So I'm excited to get to talk to him, and maybe revisit some uh, old stories with him as well. How about you? How are you doing?
0: Can't complain, TJ. Um, You know, seeing some of this news about college basketball potentially or possibly starting in, you know, kind of late November um, gets me pretty excited because, I'll be honest, I just watched an Ohio Valley football uh, game with Austin P. They played against uh, Central Arkansas in a non-conference game Saturday night. And while not many people probably throughout the country, unless they follow the OVC or the FCS, are going to sit down and watch an Austin Peay game, uh, it was a very good game. It was nationally televised on ESPN, and it was a good game. I think a lot of people probably tuned in. And seeing that game happen really just got you excited for some of the more some of the other college football games that'll be taking place this coming week and really just excited for college sports again, because college basketball can, you know, get it going. I mean, it's going to be, it's going to be fun.
1: Yeah, for sure. It's interesting. That game was nationally televised because I just saw the article today that Oklahoma and Missouri state is going to be pay-per-view only. Oh, I saw that. So I thought that was odd, you know, that, There's not going to be much out there. I'm not not sure what the motivation is, and they were even speculating uh, that maybe Dish Network and I believe it was Sling would not carry the pay-per-view. So I mean, who's going to pay fifty-five, sixty, seventy-five dollars to watch that game? I don't know. You know, for a a a Big Twelve school to go up against uh, an MVC school. I mean, granted, you know, we're all pulling for Missouri State. Sure. I don't know that I'm going to shell out fifty or sixty bucks for that, you know. So yeah, I, th- I thought that I thought that was an odd move.
0: I, I would agree. I mean, it really just kind of you know takes you by surprise. Yeah, I mean, Oklahoma is going to have the publicity whether it's nationally televised or not. But to have you know a Missouri State team, a team out of the Missouri Valley, nationally televised on ESPN, ESPNU, or just one of the ESPN affiliates, or who, what have you. It, that's right. good for their school and now yeah you're you'll still have you know some diehards that'll pay for it, but not nearly going to have the exposure that you would if it was going to be on a nationally televised channel
1: right so so that was strange i mean i know uh notre dame announced their schedule that they're going to have one of their games on the usa network which you know i'm sure some notre dame alum aren't happy about happy about but i'd much rather see my team play on <laughs> the USA network that happened to shell out money to watch them for 50 or 60 bucks.
0: Well, and I think it's just coming down to what, what channel wants to have a sporting event. Cause there's been such a lack of, and I think that they're just going with whatever they can get the most money from at this point. Right. But in the end, I for think sure. it's going to end up hurting them smaller schools by not getting the publicity, the potential of players, uh, you know looking at that school is a great place to get recruited by cuz you're losing that publicity that you would have had during a normal season where you probably were going to play on you know a Big 12 network, the Big 10 network or whatever. Right. To where so many people would be watching.
1: Right, exactly. So, I mean, we've 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 revisited this several times and just the financial impact as well for all of those schools, it's, you know, it's probably going to be years for city schools to recover from this standpoint.
0: Yeah. But other than that, I'm doing quite well. Um, I think you had some news and notes, TJ, that you wanted to uh, discuss here before we have coach Lusk on for his interview.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's not uh, basketball related or, you know, valleys related, but I think your know, Chadwick Bozeman's passing was a huge surprise to me. And I, I haven't found anybody that even knew he was sick, much less, battling colon cancer to the degree that he did and you know in the the iconic roles that he had as black panther i think uh, it can't be understated how important it was for the african-american community to have a superhero in the black panther and you know just the way people are drawn to it you see the stuff on uh you know social media where there's little kids that you know have the black panther laying there in the middle of the other uh you know superheroes as if you know, they're kind of having their own funeral service and just the ways you see it impacting kids. And he played iconic people. He plays uh, Thurgood Marshall, who was, you know, a Supreme Court justice, Jackie Robinson in 42, and then James Brown as well. So, I mean, kind of covers the whole spectrum of, you know, very influential African-Americans for the 20th century. And, you know, just unbelievable that we lose them that early. And, uh, he was in a movie my wife and I watched a couple of years ago at Christmas called 21 Bridges, which I think was underrated. I really, really enjoyed that movie, you know, and uh, it, I, I would highly suggest that you go watch it. But again, I was just shocked when I heard that was that Friday night. So I don't know how you took that news or how you heard it. but
0: Well, I know I know this is a college basketball podcast. Um, you know, I watch college basketball, you know a lot you know it's one of my favorite things to do but you know with baseball really being kind of like my favorite sport you know that Jackie Robinson movie 42 probably one of my favorite films out there not, not even just wow. in the sports world just in general and I thought the way he played Jackie Robinson in that film was second to none I thought it was an outstanding movie and I thought just all around it he did a great job and that and I, I think some people really weren't familiar with him until that movie came out, especially kind of right. like in that for, you know, a sports movie, if you will. But I I thought he did an outstanding job. And it's a uh, it's just sad to see that, uh, you know, the news on him.
1: Right. And then, you know, kind of following that same timeline or that same kind of theme, I guess you will, uh, Coach John Thompson. Uh, you know, for me, I'm, I'm quite a bit older than you. But you think that he coached Patrick Ewing, Alonzo Mourning, and Dikembe Matumbo, as you know, some of the preeminent big men in college basketball of the '80s, and then uh, into the early '90s with Allen Iverson. You know, Allen Iverson. I don't know if you've seen it yet, but there's the clip where he says that Coach Thompson saved his life because I don't know if, if you're aware of this, but in high school, uh, Allen Iverson was uh, involved in like a brawl at a bowling alley and was arrested and you know, got into trouble for it. And Iverson said that nobody was recruiting him. Like he, he was very highly recruited. I, I believe it was, uh, Virginia someplace. Newport news is what comes to mind, but I wouldn't okay. swear to that. And, you know, the, the offers disappeared. People didn't want to touch him and stuff like that. And his mom went to Thompson and begged him to give him a chance. And he did. And it just, you know, saved him from a life of who knows what, you know, to becoming, you know, uh, the Sixers icon and Hall of Famer. So all those guys, he was influential on when he's the first African-American head coach to win a national championship when they won in 1984. And I remember seeing an interview that during that time, they were asking him about being the first African-American coach. He's like, hey, I'm the first coach to win. And we're the first school to win a title from the Northeast in X number of years. He was as focused on that, if not more than the fact that he was the first African-American head coach to win it. So, and just the Big East was so huge in the late '80s and the early '90s, and he was a big part of that. He with you know St. John's and you know uh, Villanova, and I think uh, Providence was in there too. all those schools just you just saw that kind of take off. And ESPN with them, Big Monday was a huge deal. That the first game every Monday night after Christmas was going to be a Big East game, and followed probably by a Big Ten game or a big a game but i mean you always knew you were gonna watch you know georgetown and syracuse go at it you know week after week but i didn't know this until they. but he spent 27 seasons at georgetown which is just wow you know unbelievable that you to think about now that a coach can hang around that long anymore
0: so yeah he uh, he he had a you know outstanding career georgetown i mean touched so many so many lives there you know yeah the The players came in as, you know, recruited there to play basketball. But, you know, he helped, you know, as you said, so many players off the court as well, you know, character. And it's it's just sad. I mean, he was very instrumental uh, as a coach to helping uh, young men.
1: So, and then I just saw this today. Uh, John Rothstein is uh, tweeting that the Men's and Women's Basketball Oversight Committee is going to propose a start date of November 25th uh, to the Division One Council. So it looks like sometime you know, in the next couple of weeks there's supposed to be meetings uh, a couple of weeks after that uh, and see maybe how this is going to sort out. Uh, there's been several dates thrown out, but November 25th, which is I believe that is what the day, two days before Thanksgiving, maybe something like that. Somewhere in that week, yeah. I think the 27th, the 26th is Thanksgiving, I think. So the 25th would be that day before, and, you know, and you know, we'll get into that with this article that you and I've talked the wanted to talk about today. So, uh, article that we came across from heat check CBB and uh, I apologize if I don't say this name correctly, but Eli Betker, uh, wrote late last week. So late, uh, in August, you know, some start dates coming into focus. So what are your thoughts about, I mean, I know you mentioned that you're excited, just period, that we kind of have hope for a basketball season, but pushing it back, do you think that's a good idea? Do you think, you know, let's go ahead and start when we normally would? Uh, what are your thoughts about that?
0: Well, for me personally, I mean, I would I would love for it to start when it would normally do because that means we're that much closer to a college basketball season. Um, from a standpoint, with all things considered right now, I can understand the concept of starting Around you know maybe middle of middle of November or close to it, just because that would mean most. I know some schools were, had had the mindset of well, you know, just start like your Christmas break early and you know basically be gone around November. And so if a lot of students are going to be off campus by then, um, I think it could make sense for certain areas if if that's an area where. Uh, a bubble, maybe, if that is the route they are willing or thinking about going.
1: Right. I I don't know. I find it kind of odd though, because you know those girls guys are already on campus. They're already working True. out. You know how many days a week they've been there since late July, early August. So I'm not quite sure what pushing it back by what a month, what difference that really makes at this point. Well, I you know get I mean?
0: that, That's a valid point, and I guess another another route that I could go with is, it's kind of, uh, you know, it's trial by error, but you kind of wait and see how these first couple weeks of these college football games go. Um, Because obviously, there's a lot of contact in those college football games. And if those universities and programs are able to keep those players, you know, healthy, and, you know, everything goes as planned, and that's playing football, uh, you know, why not keep, the, you know, college basketball the same? And if the Big Ten's going to meet again on uh, looking at, you know, changing their original outlook on moving college football, you know, to the spring and now trying to move it back to the fall, you know, th- there's a lot of moving parts right now. And I think these next couple weeks or even this week, uh, could possibly, you know, decide if if they want to keep college basketball around that same time period as it has been in years past.
1: Right. And that's something that uh, Eli mentions here as well, is that the, the difference for college basketball versus football is that you seem to have one voice leading college basketball, you know, with this committee, with uh, the oversight committee, whereas football, we don't seem to have that. Like it feels like the conferences are so powerful in football, especially the, the power five that we always talk about that they're kind of on their own agenda. Whereas college basketball, Hey, we all have this one, one goal we're moving towards together. And it, I think that's going to be a huge difference to me. It's like having one person calling the shots in any scenario versus, you know, three people calling the shots. So like when we talk to, uh, Kelly Pendleton, DeVilder, a couple of weeks ago. To me, it would be odd to have co head coaches because if you get conflicting information, which way do you go? You know, I, that's always one of the tough things. I mean, in a traditional situation with head coach, assistant coach, you get conflicting information from those two. You go with the head coach. You know, with football, you got to have like five head coaches and pulling in different directions for their own best interests. And, you know, I think that hopefully college basketball is in better hands. And, I think the NCAA tournament is that much bigger of a deal to so many more uh, partners, so to speak. Sure. Whereas with the football championship, there's there's four schools, not 68 schools. You know, so I think that plays a role as well. That we're kind of like, hey, we have this goal moving together. there's nothing else, maybe the <laughs> NCAA tournament committee could start making calls. And be like, all right, that's what we're going to go with. Well, as opposed to the SEC having so much more influence than you know the Pac-12 might have. And he, from a football
0: standpoint. And he makes a good point, um, you know, with how you think one sport has a lot more people calling the shots. You're really not sure which one that you're going to go to, whereas the other sport, it's kind of like, well, we're going to follow this this guy or whomever is in charge of that committee, and we're going to roll with that. Um, and the the example that I kind of fall back on is – how the college basketball conference tournament started closing or getting canceled when all this started. It was like everybody was on their own to make their decision, and there really wasn't uh, one person set on making that decision for them. You know, you had a couple tournaments wow. that finished before any of this really was released, so it didn't really affect them. Like the OVC and MVC, they played their full tournament, and then it wasn't a couple days later. Yeah, then you had the tournaments that started getting canceled the Big East actually played one half and then canceled at right. halftime. So I think that if you have someone that's willing to listen to, you know, some key players out there take everything in consideration, um, I think that's probably a lot better route to go.
1: Yeah. Another thing he talked about was that uh, he quoted Jeff Goodman from stadium had pulled 251 division one ADs and 96% are Confident, very confident or somewhat confident that we'll have some form of a season, and uh, 97% are very confident or somewhat confident that we'll have an NCAA tournament. So that that definitely bodes well, I think, for our possibilities of having something, uh, some form of basketball season. It may not be what we're traditionally used to, maybe a truncated version, but uh, I, and, you know. And most of them thought that the biggest obstacle right now is testing. What? when it comes to you know getting the turnaround time anyone's been tested you know it can take anywhere from two days to you know five days to get your results so you know they need something that's a little bit faster and cheaper than that more cost effective
0: well i'll say this i it's great to see the percentages are there for that you know obviously there's a lot more than 250 athletic directors however i think there has to be an ncaa tournament this year i mean the yes college football is the money maker for the ncaa but march madness i mean it's no pushover it's not like they just bring in a couple bucks that's a you know it's a million dollar uh tournament that a lot of people are watching there's a lot of advertisements a lot of sponsors so after seeing them miss out on it last year i can't see that there is any way the ncaa will allow that to go by the wayside for two years in a row yeah
1: so and i think the last thing the point to mention that he uh had here because we kind of covered the March Madness being uh, they're optimistic about that but there's some ideas about some uh, bubbles developing Uh, and one could be possibly in Florida like where Disney is hosting the NBA one and maybe some of those preseason tournaments and he even mentions in here like the Empire Classic, uh, the Legends Classic, some tournaments like that having them kind of that situation. There's a person out of uh, Houston he's a, they're a college sports event organizer and delivered a proposal to more than eighty teams and they would have get twenty teams in this bubble and each team would play eight non conference games in a scrimmage in December in a three week period. So from December first to December twenty first. And I wonder who would be interested in doing that. You know, that's eight games in twenty one days is a lot of basketball.
0: It's it's a lot of basketball, but the the one positive there for I guess whatever teams would be involved uh there's no travel so you're not you're not worrying about you know catching a plane from Florida to you know go play at Gonzaga so you're not putting on the mileage that you would if you're you know power five schools or you know mid-majors trying to play a money game so that's that's the one positive I do see yeah eight games is a lot but at least they're in that same Area to where, yeah, you can just go right back to the hotel or whatever and relax. You're not trying to, okay, well, we got a 10 hour bus trip after this game to go play two days from now.
1: Right. And I mean, I think the one issue there being December 1st, our school's going to be done with finals by then. Because I've spoken to, you know, several families that have, you know, kids in college or spoken to the kids that are in college themselves. It's kind of across the spectrum as to, how often they're going to class in terms of meeting person you know, face to face or even meeting full time online. And, you know, it's 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 interesting, but I think of any year that you'd be able to pull off some quality distance learning. This is it because so many professors and colleges are, are doing it out of necessity right now. So you might even be missing less class than you would in a traditional sense, that you're not completely off campus for a week on, on a road trip to, you know, Puerto Rico or Cancun it's sure. you're, you're there, you know, like, okay. And you, you, know, I'm sure coaches set aside like, all right, you have, you know, this is the time that you need to worry about your classes, you know, and classes being recorded and things like that. So it's much different than it was even a year ago for a lot of those people. So maybe this is a chance to do it. And maybe a bubble could be possible without sacrificing class like you might have in a traditional sense.
0: Yeah I mean I definitely think there's ways to make this uh, make this possible. Um, it's just it's just time you know it's I think there's a there's a lot of people out there that are real positive about you know stuff moving forward and then others are a little hesitant so I mean everything's just just gonna take time and hopefully by uh, by November at some point there is a college basketball season and that's I'll leave it at that. <laughs>
1: Yep, we'll just, you know, hope for the best and plan for the worst, right? Is that the old saying?
0: <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> but uh, with that, we'll uh, we'll go ahead and bring in uh, Coach Paul Lusk, former coach at Missouri State. He uh, currently coaching at Creighton as an assistant coach, and we'll go ahead and give you that interview as we caught up with him earlier in the week. And we are joined by former Missouri State head coach and current Creighton assistant head coach, Paul Lusk. Coach Lusk, how are you doing today?
1: I'm good, guys. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, appreciate you really Appreciate
1: taking... you. Really appreciate you coming on. Uh, I think I was telling Chris before we brought you on, I, I, obviously we grew up in the same hometown, and I w- if I were to say that there was a, a Mount Rushmore, so to speak, of people that made me fall in love with the game of basketball, there's my father, uh, Coach Brinkman, who coached alongside your father, and then you and your high school teammate, Brent Brady, like, uh, just getting the chance to watch you guys play. Just, I mean, it was just a magical time for me and a really developmental uh, stage in my life. So I'm always thankful for uh, yeah. you know, th- that display and watching you grow up and the work that you put in in the game of basketball. So that was always a lot of fun for me. Well, thanks, man. Thanks for those kind words. But yeah, I think it was a, it was a great time. Obviously, I grew up... Uh, with my dad coaching at Westland, and I've often talked about like that was a that was kind of his players were my idols and guys I really looked up to and uh went to all the games and you know they 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 gave me a hard time, beat me up, taking me <laughs> up threw me in the ball cage, but you know I loved it, and just really cherished the day that I would be able to get to that point and uh be able to play for the high school team, which was good and then yeah, it was a, it was a great time. at great time. Just uh, great teammates, great fans, and it was a really good run. Yeah. So the end of your school, your career uh, scoring over twenty seven hundred points. It's still sixteenth in the state of Illinois. You're very highly recruited. Uh, you know, almost every school you could think of. It seemed like at that time, at least, made contact with your dad, who was, like you said, a coach there. What was that process like for you, and what ultimately led you to choose the University of of Iowa. I mean, your freshman year they're gonna to go to the NCAA tournament. Yeah. It you know, the whole process was I just kind of kept my head down in work and work and my dad played division one, my Uncle Gary played division one at Iowa and started I I think really I played I played baseball all the way growing up and enjoyed that and, and then it really kinda of got to about my freshman year and I was playing varsity basketball and I just was so passionate about basketball. And it's, I think I remember one day, um, maybe it was at the, and I can't remember if we played in the fall or spring, but it was probably the spring after my freshman year, I, I went, I went out and I told, I think Mr. Brady was the coach, Brent's dad. And I just, it was the first day of practice. And all I was thinking about was, Geez, I got to get home and get to the courts. You know, get over to New Baden Elementary to to, to work out. And I just knew my heart wasn't in it, so um, you know, I gave that up. But I'm, and I think that's a problem today. I do think kids become too specialized with just playing one sport from an early age on. Uh, I think when you get up to high school and you feel like maybe basketball's the path that you can get your education paid for at baseball, then it's okay. But I do think kids become too specialized, but Um, I think I got my first offer from St. Louis U when I was a freshman in high school from Rich Grower and my dad played at SLU and it was, it was neat. And it's, it's, it's exciting, uh, to get recruited and, and I, you know, I do it for a living and I tell families all the time, it's, it's exciting at first, but then ultimately, you know, you have to make a decision and you develop these relationships and, and you have to tell someone, no, I always tell kids, you know, it's like going to prom. You, you can only take one date, man. You can't, you can't go with everyone. So, so you've got to, you've got to pick someone, but um, why did I pick Iowa? You know, I kind of flip flop back a couple of times. I mean, St. Louis, U. had done such a, they they did a great job of recruiting me. Uh, and then I was extremely close with SIU staff um, Coach Heron, Ron Smith, all of those guys, and then Iowa. And I think it was after TJ, I think it was after my junior year, we lost the East St. Louis Assumption uh-huh. in the sectional. And um my dad called me in his office and Iowa had already offered by then, but uh back then there really weren't early commitments, you know. Uh, kids kids took their took their five visits as a senior and then you made a decision and and the whole landscape of college basketball has changed now. Kids decide so much earlier but my dad called me in and he said, hey uh, you know, I will really they would like for you to verbally commit and if you if you do, they're going to be done recruiting guards at your position and so we kind of sat on that and, and decided to do that um, grew up in Big Ten territory and Big Ten country and uh, was, was really excited about getting there and, uh, things changed. I mean, I, I, I loved it there. I would have thought I would have finished my career there, but, uh, had that injury third game of my freshman season. I was starting and, uh, things happened for a reason. I uh, met my wife there, obviously, uh, lost a great friend in Chris street. And after that injury, I, I wasn't healthy. I wasn't happy. I got the medical red shirt, came back and played a little bit that next year. And I just, I just didn't feel right there and uh, ended up transferring down to Southern Illinois. And, and that was just a terrific move for me. Um, Just, and I probably knew I wanted to get into coaching. And so I always, you know, a lot of times a transfer can be looked at as a negative thing. Um, But I always looked at it like it's a positive because I got to, be a part of two really good programs and, and two very successful coaches, and, and, um, kind of evaluate what I liked and what I didn't like. So, uh, it's kind of how I made my decision. Um, as I said, it's changed so much in college basketball now. Kids, parents get their kids out and they take unofficials so early, and recruiting's different. You have social media, all games are on TV, you can get access to games, and, And um, kids make earlier decisions nowadays. But uh, loved Iowa. And and as I said, I I transferred from there. But I I have nothing but really good feelings about that place. Have a lot of terrific friends. Uh, The one thing about that state, going to the University of Iowa, like, and I was in that league as an assistant at Purdue for a long time. And they always welcome you back. And they always look at me as as a former Hawkeye. And I was there for whatever, a year and a half and, and left and, and finished my career at Southern Illinois. But, uh, it was a good experience. The transfer, uh, taught me a lot and, and, um, but it's hard, it's hard to make a decision. What happens in recruiting is you get so close with these staffs and now you get even closer to these kids because we have access to them via you know, iPhones and texting and all of that, and but it was really hard. It was very difficult for me to tell Coach Heron no, because I was probably and Coach Grower, I was really close with them. Norm Stewart recruited me uh, from Mizzou. Uh, I was recruited by a lot of people, but uh, um, I think that's what becomes the hardest mm-hmm. thing for kids is is to is to really figure out where you want to go, and then have to tell those other staffs that you've gotten so close with, um, no. And what happens in recruiting is you can say you're, you're going to be good at it. And parents think they understand it, but if you've never been through it, you really don't know what's going on. Right. And I think so many times in today's world, kids get, kids get infatuated with all the bells and whistles. And I really always try to explain to parents and players like, if if the program doesn't have the right people if we don't play the right style that fits your talent level um it doesn't matter that they play in front of 17,000 fans or they've got you know great facilities uh it it just doesn't matter you would be happier playing in an old barn uh if you were with the right people and and so i i do think that it gets down to a it gets down to those decisions now there's over a thousand transfers in division one basketball. So what that says to me is like transfers at an all time high, and it's going to continue to be that way. So there are some bad decisions being made, but, but I do think a lot of times in in our profession it get the transfer thing gets talked about so much When kids, kids are transferring. at such a quick rate. Uh, but a lot of times, hopefully they're for the right reasons. And, um, but that's kind of why I made my decision. I love the Big Ten. Um, I really wouldn't change anything I did. You know, I can't. I can't help that. You know, I ended up breaking my leg. I, I do think that. You know, things happen for a reason in life. If I wouldn't have broken my leg, I do think I would have. You know, I would have stayed there for my entire career and, and hopefully had a good career.
0: Ultimately, you were part of a string of three straight Missouri Valley Conference tournament championships and NCAA appearances. In the three championship games, you scored 13, 14, and 16 points. Why do you think you and your team had such great success during those years?
1: Wow, you know, I and I often talk about it. Winning a winning a state championship was just a great thrill, and and I don't know that you can say, well, this one was better than any other experience that I had in my sports career, but. From an athletic standpoint, when when we were able to break through in 93, the year I got eligible at Southern, and Coach Heron, I, you know, at that time, he was on the hot seat. We had to win and probably get in. And uh, and he just did a – Coach Heron did a phenomenal job with Southern Illinois, it was resurrecting them. But I probably would say that if we didn't get in that year, he might have been let go. Wow. But um, that – we, they hadn't. Southern hadn't been in 17 years, right? And uh, in '93, when we we were able to get in, and and back then it was at the old Checker Dome uh, in St. Yep. Louis, <laughs> and and uh, it was. That's probably one of the biggest thrills of my sports life. Just getting through and getting to the NCAA tournament and then to come back and do it two more times. So we did it. you know, we did the three P. How does that happen? It happens with really good players, uh, really good teammates, really good coaches. Um, Yeah. So that was a, that was a, that was a great thrill uh, for all of us and and for me in particular to play in three Valley tournaments and go nine and I always talked about like in TJ, you knew we would play in different Christmas tournaments when you, you know, over three or four years, you you would lose games in those Christmas tournaments. It was hard to go undefeated. And I was fortunate that in three Missouri Valley tournaments, you know, we went 9-0 and and never lost a game. So just an absolute great, great thrill um, for us and, and for the university. So you brought up the Checkerdome. Dome. Uh, what was it like when you guys... The tournament left the the old arena or the Checker Dome. Yeah, and we went to the newly revamped. Yes, uh, it was the Sabbath Center then. I, well, I didn't think it was the Sabbath Center yet. It was. uh do even. And know now it's Enterprise it. Center. Yeah. So what's interesting? Ninety three, we won it at the Checker Dome. Ninety four, we went it at the Checker Dome. Who did we might have beaten Northern Iowa. We figured Tulsa would have been there, but Tulsa got knocked off with Tubby Smith. But, so in ninety four when we won it in St. Louis at the Checkered Dome, that was the last, I believe it was the last sporting event ever at that venue. And then they tore it down. So then the next year we moved in uh to the which it was the Keel or Scout trade. I don't even remember what it was. So that was that was kind of neat to be a part of that history to, you know, play in that last event at the Checkered Dome and then to open the new facility up uh and be able to win that. In St. Louis uh, at the new at the Kiel or whatever it was was a great deal, and I, you know, St. Louis is the, the Valley and Doug Elgin. They've they've always done a terrific, terrific job with Arch Madness, and I've I've been fortunate. I've been a part of a lot of different conference tournaments uh, as a player, and then in particular as a coach, the Big Ten, uh, the Big East, uh, the Valley, and I will say that the Valley. Uh, they, you know, they don't have to take a backseat to anyone with the way they run their tournament. Now, I do think things have changed, and obviously, you lose Creighton out of the league, you lose Wichita. After after my senior year in 1995, Southern had three really bad years, and right. I think one year the ninth and tenth place team didn't get to go to the tournament, so that that killed Valley attendance because Southern didn't didn't qualify for that. So they changed that rule. But uh, yeah, back, you know, back in those from 93 to 95, they called it the Saluki Invitational. <laughs> and uh, it was a, uh, it was a lot of fun. And it was fun so, coaching in it as well. Uh, you know, getting the coach in it. So your senior year uh, in, in the NCAA tournament, you guys fall to Syracuse in a tough fought game. 96-92 was the closest you guys came to advance in those three years. I think yeah. Syracuse... Loses to Arkansas, who ends up losing in the in the title game. So there's no slouch that you lost to. What memories do you have of that game? Whether it be, you know, the, how, mm-hmm. how close you guys were to Syracuse and mm-hmm. in your your last game. Well, yeah, that was emotional. Um, I was, I would, I would do a lot of reflection even as a young person. I, I just, I remember going into the championship game. Back then, the Valley, it was on Monday night on ESPN. And on that Sunday night when we advanced going into my senior year, just thinking, my goodness, we've got a chance to go to win this thing again and go to another NCAA tournament. And I always felt like, you know, there's always stepping stones. Our first year when we got in, when Duke came up, I I remember some of the coaches saying, well, we can match up with, you know, Bobby Hurley or Grant Hill and and I had played against Duke. I was hurt my freshman year at Iowa, but I knew what kind of program they had and and we ended up just getting absolutely crushed that first year in 93. Then 94, we played Minnesota who was really good and we were it I think it ended up maybe 13 or 14, but it was much closer than that. And then I really thought we could break through. Uh, my senior year, and we were right there. Uh, we were right there with Syracuse. We played in Austin, Texas. Uh, they had a great team at the time. It was they had Lawrence Moten, who's, who who was the all-time leading scorer in the history of the Big East until this past year, until Marcus Howard uh, broke it from um, Marquette. But just you know, you you're a lot of things. You just you're disappointed that you didn't advance and you didn't get through. But you're also Thankful that you were able to be a part of all of that, um, and and just kind of wondering what my next move would be after the NCAA tournament. Uh, I felt like I I played well, uh, and and you know hopefully would get some opportunities. So coming
0: out of your senior year in 1995, the NBA lockout leads to cancellation of the NBA summer league. You end up being one of the last cuts for the Phoenix Suns. How do you think missing summer league impacted your chances to making, you know, the NBA roster?
1: Well, I don't know if I was last cut, but I was cut. And if you've never been cut, it's quite humbling. And it was interesting. So we get done with the season, we lose to Syracuse. Going into my senior year, my junior year, I led us in scoring at SIU, and we were really good. And I played with pros, but I led us in scoring in the NBA personnel had reached out they wanted all my measurements you know so I was somewhat on their radar and and so after the season I get invited you know I get invited uh talk to the Suns a couple times and you know they said I wasn't going to probably be drafted but they would like to bring me in and uh And then obviously there was the lockout. And so we didn't have the summer league, but then in the fall they ended up putting a little mini camp together and they brought me out and I played well, I actually signed a contract to go through the preseason to go through everything. And then I ended up getting cut, but uh, that was, that that was a great experience for me. Um, I couldn't get a job. I, I wasn't able to get a job overseas. So, uh, that first year out, so I I, I worked for Jay Harrington and um, at, at Swick and and started coaching. And through that time, um, I just stayed in shape. And 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 a couple of the teams had said, "Hey, we're gonna have a full summer next year. Hopefully, you'll get a really good look." And you know, the NBA obviously settled the the strike. And that that second summer out, the Suns brought me in. And I was in the best shape of my life. And uh, um, they probably brought, I mean, they brought their draft picks and a couple of free agents in. And then generally in those camps in the summer, the, the guys that don't play a whole lot that are all currently on their roster, they're going to be in that summer league. So, I mean, we, we probably had camp for about a week and they just kept cutting guys, cutting guys, cutting guys. And then I made their summer league roster and I was able to. I was able to go go play out in the LA Summer League, and what's interesting about that, I, I I played well out in the LA Summer League, and even coming out of that, I had a couple opportunities to go overseas with some jobs, and they fell through, and um, and so then once again, I started helping Jay Harrington out, and and it was I think it was about mid year that year, my second year out. I ended up getting game film from the LA Summer League, and, and I had I think I had 20 points against the Lakers. I played against Kobe uh, that summer, and that tape right there, they got it out to some people, and it got me a couple jobs overseas. But um, that was a great experience. Steve Nash was my roommate uh, in the LA Summer Pro League. Um, I should mention that Kobe did have 36 against us uh, when when I played when I played against him. I didn't get to guard him a whole lot. They were trying some other guys, but uh, that was a great experience for me. I was able to go, you know, from there, I was able to go play overseas. I bounced around in a couple of the professional leagues in the States, but um, it was a good experience. And here's what I would tell you guys. Like I was, my dad, like my dad had a way of humbling you. And I really, I wasn't an NBA player. I mean, I, 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 I think, like, I took my ability literally as far as it could go. And I did some good things when I was in NBA camps and NBA summer leagues. And But I wasn't, you know, I probably wasn't an NBA player. And um, I don't have any shame in that. I tell guys all the time. I talk to a lot of guys all the time that think they are an NBA player. And I'm sitting there watching them <laughs> saying, you're probably not. Uh-huh. Um, but I'll, I, there, there's something with that mindset. My goal was always, you know, I just, I think I, my goal was always just be a really good college player. If I could be an all big 10 guy. And I think about at the end of my freshman year, even though I was hurt, I, I got off to a really good start before I got hurt. And Tom Davis called me in and, and I was going through the injury, but he said like, you need to think about maybe being an NBA player. Like you got, you could have a chance of, of potentially doing that. I know your goals are to be really good, be an All big 10 guy, but like, you got to start setting your sights a little bit higher. And I just, I thought that was the craziest thing I've ever heard because <laughs> I didn't <laughs> think, I didn't think that way. And um, so, but anyways, it was a good experience. I'm, I'm really glad that I got to do those things and experience that just with those NBA camps. So you continue to pursue opportunities to play professionally, which you alluded to, where, where did that lead you? Where are some of the highlights, the low lights that, that you have of chasing that dream still? Yeah. Well, going overseas is really hard. I mean, um, I was I was uh I ended up playing in Argentina for two years and it's really hard being away. People think to think that it was all glamorous. But um I will tell you this. I, I, I met great friends over there, great teammates, and the ball was really good at that time when I was playing in Argentina. I remember calling my dad and saying I, I was probably 22 or 23 at the time. saying there's this kid named Emmanuel Ginobili over here that is 19 and he is phenomenal. He was in the league, Fabrizio oh, Alberto, a bunch of different, yeah, a bunch of different NBA guys that were just starting. They were young guys before they came over to the states, but great beyond my last year of not getting my money because my team had all kinds of financial problems, which is, and my wife was with me at the time, which is really hard when you run into that overseas a lot, but like great crowds, fanatical fans, uh, really enjoyed that played in Columbia a little bit. I mean, I've been to a lot of different places. Um, and I got back, I I was probably that after that second year I got back and I, I just, I knew that I wanted to coach and I still had an opportunity to go get some jobs overseas. But I was like, man, the the more I keep leaving the country, the less opportunity and the more that window for college coaching is gonna, is gonna close on me. Actually my first year in Argentina, coach Heron called me and tried getting me to come back to leave during the season to be one of his assistants. And, uh, it was something that I thought about, but I ended up not doing (laughs)
0: So you said that you had you know you had that opportunity to coach at the basically in the back of your head when you were going through some of the some of the processes. Um did you you know, with you wanting to get into coaching, did that have something to do with, you know, you growing up seeing your dad as a high school coach?
1: Um, I think so. I I mean, I don't know that I mean, just growing up around the game, I mean as I said, I'm not, I'm not a carpenter. <laughs> I'm not, I mean, there's a lot of things. I, I, I know basketball and that's what I grew up around. And I was exposed to it at an early age. And I, I remember people telling me in particular down at Southern Illinois, they thought just with the way I played and I carried myself and I played with another coach, Chris Lowry. I mean, we kind of were the backcourt and we coach Aaron gave us a lot of freedom and, and we handled a lot of things. So I think it was just, you know, yeah, it was all my past experiences that were leading me to that. And the reality was I, you know, I didn't, I mean, I I thought about college, but it wasn't, I mean, that really wasn't a priority. I just enjoyed coaching. And, and, uh, to this day, I mean, I could, I could be happy just coaching a high school team or working with guys. I think what happens on the level that I get to, it becomes such a business, and there are so many other things that go into it besides the actual coaching, the X's and O's, the developing players. And it's not just about developing players. It's about developing people. I mean, you really have to develop these young people on and off the floor, but there's there's such that's such a small amount of the job anymore. Obviously, you have to be qualified. You have to know what you're doing. But there's just so many other things that go into it, whether it's recruiting, whether it's dealing with boosters, whether it's dealing with parents, you know, uh, whether it's dealing with injuries, whether it's dealing with kids wanting to transfer because they they don't want to wait their turn. So there's just so many other hats that a head coach has to wear, even assistance for that much, for that part, you know, on the level that I'm on. But yeah, I mean, I grew up around it, so probably figured it was something I'd do. And I and I've got you know I've got a master's in elementary education, uh, my degrees in teaching, so I think that served me well. So on your coaching, correct? You eventually returned to SIU. You're on Matt Painter's staff for that 2003-2004 season. Guys have a great year, going 25 and five overall, 17 and one in league play. Lose to Missouri State in the tournament semifinals. At that time, being a mid major. What was the feeling like? Uh, what did you guys feel were your chances of getting an at-large uh, given the great season you had? Yeah. I mean, you know, generally, no, it hasn't been that way the last couple of years, uh, but generally if you're going to win the league outright in the Valley, you're getting in. I mean, that's just what the numbers say. Now that's changed a little bit, but we felt like we were in great position and that was a great opportunity for me uh, to work with Matt and, and work for him and, we were all young, and uh, Southern was just coming off of a great year. And Coach Weber went to Illinois, and Southern, I think, lost over thirty-five hundred points. I, I think. I think it was thirty-five hundred between uh, Jermaine, uh, Jermaine, Dearman, Kent Williams, uh, and and so we weren't expected to be that good, but we had a great season, and we really felt like we'd get in. I mean, we went seventeen and one in the league. And, now we I think we beat Evansville in the first round of the conference tournament and then we lost to Missouri State uh, but we felt like we would get in we did get in uh we played Alabama and we took them right to the wire and lost again.
0: so you ended up coaching at Purdue with Matt Painter um you know as an assistant coach and then you you end up going to Missouri State you know end up becoming the head coach there for you know I think it was about 7 8 years uh, what stands out to you at Missouri State for as long as you were there?
1: Well, I mean, first of all, like, when we were at Southern, it was such a unique uh, situation because Matt got offered the coaching waiting job at uh, at um, uh, Purdue, and I was just at Southern Illinois for 10 months just on the Division One level, and you can play Division I basketball, but you really don't know what goes into the Division One coaching unless you've done it. The guys that have played it and think they understand the ins and outs, they don't. You you have to you have to get the experience to do it. But I I interviewed for the Southern Illinois job, and and Chris Lowry ended up getting it. And, and at the time, you know what? I think I was thirty or thirty one. I wasn't ready. And Matt offered me a spot. Uh, To come with him to Purdue, and obviously it it had to be Coach Katie had to give his blessing uh, because Coach Katie was still the coach that last year. So that was a great experience working for Coach Katie uh, that first year at Purdue while while Matt was the coach in waiting, and we were no good. I think we won. I think we won seven games, but for me, it was great to see how Coach Katie attacked each day and approached it because he had such a storied career and that meant so much to the big 10 and to Purdue and the college basketball to see him act professional because it was really hard to see us not win in his last year, but man, he handled it like a pro. I got the opportunity at Missouri state and you know, we you get the opportunity to coach and you head coaches get the opportunity or our assistant coaches get the opportunity to get head coaching jobs because of good players and we had a lot of success at Purdue and it took us a while. I mean, we, we went through some real growing pains, uh, but we got it going and I was able to get that job. And, you know, that was exciting at the time. Konzo was just leaving there and uh, Konzo had just won a championship and, and Konzo was straight up with me. He said, Hey, I, I brought some guys in. Uh, you're losing a lot. You got to get some guys. And, uh, but at the end of the day it was it was a good opportunity for me um you're hired to be fired uh you know in this profession um we won 17 in my second to last year 18 in my last we just didn't win enough and that and that's what happens uh when you don't win enough you you get let go and and that was hard it was in particularly hard on my family but i think you learn from it you get better uh, you got to keep plugging away, but I, I enjoyed my time uh, in the Valley. Now I didn't enjoy having Creighton and Wichita stayed in there <laughs> uh, because they were just, they were, they were operating on a, on a whole right. different level and um, they, you know, they were very, very good. Um, very good. Now, Wichita left after my seventh year, so that last year they were gone and and we were off to a really good start, and, and uh, you know, Loyola ended up winning the league, and we have beaten them first game of the Valley Tournament, but uh, Loyola ended up going to a Final Four. So it's a great league, great coaches, really good people. So you talk about needing to have those players, needing to have those athletes. When you're at you as a player, you play with Ashraf Amaya. When you come back, you get the opportunity to coach Darren Brooks, who, you know, I think are – two of the, the great players to play for the Salukis, both of them were Larry Bird winners, defensive player of the year winners. Did you see any comparisons to the, between the two, and what do you think made them such great players during their time at Southern? Oh, I mean, just, you know, obviously talented guys. Um, you know, Ashraf Amaya, um, man, he was he was just a load. and But, like, guys like... But, I would tell my Iowa teammates, like I'm playing with more pros down here in Southern Illinois than you guys had at Iowa. (laughs) You know, Ashraf Amaya was an NBA player. Um, um, You had Chris Carr too, didn't you? Chris Carr. Chris Carr and I were on three, three NCAA tournament teams. He was an NBA player. Troy Hudson was sitting out my senior year. He was an NBA player. Um, Marcus, Marcus Timmons was an NBA player. He didn't make it, but he was an NBA talent. So, I was in NBA camps. Chris Lowry was a terrific talent. Tyrone Bell, so a lot of good players. Um, Darren Brooks, uh, Ashraf Amaya was just a winner. Uh, he was self-made. He wasn't heavily recruited. Uh, great person, terrific person. Um, Darren Brooks, you know, I wasn't there for his recruitment, but I coached him. And, like, DB was such a unique player. Uh, not only was he the Valley player of the year he was the defensive player of the year and Darren Brooks was not heavily recruited I think he had one other division one offer and they redshirted him as a freshman and he was thinking about transferring and he stayed and uh became a great player he he was he was a terrific terrific player just a very good basketball player I'll say this like Chris Carr was uh Chris Carr really worked Chris Carr came from a small town um was not heavily recruited. Was a guy that was kind of a post player. Made himself into a perimeter shooter. Became, you know, became an NBA player. Marcus Timmons was as good as anyone I've ever played with. I mean, he was as good of a college basketball player. was six eight, six nine, terrific wingspan. Uh, could bring the ball up if the guards were getting pressured and, and play as that point forward. Could rebound. Uh, just a terrific terrific player but i played with a lot of good players you know in both programs iowa and, and obviously it's southern illinois and then i've been fortunate to coach a lot of good players
0: so you're still around the game as an assistant for greg mcdermott what has been the process for you to become accustomed to his coaching style compared to other staffs you have been on in your career
1: yeah so mac and i you know, they were in the Valley and we coached against each other and Mac and I have always known each other. Um, not great. Not like we're talking on the phone all the time, but I I think there was obviously a mutual respect there. Um, it's been good. Uh, you know, I was without a job. I mean, it was probably roughly one or two weeks and there were some opportunities that started, uh, coming about and, and really, the, the the Creighton one uh, was intriguing to me because I've known Mac. I didn't know him great, but I, I know his reputation. Uh, Steve Merfeld is here, who's a really close friend of mine. Um, so it, it was a it was a pretty simple deal. I mean, I went and met with Mac, and he pretty much offered me a, the job on the spot, and I took it. And it's been a great experience for me. It's really been good. You, you kind of you kind of decompress. And I think when you're a head coach, you you have so many things going on, um, that you just, you have to manage all of those things. And, and one thing that's been really good for me since I've been here for two years is just getting really involved with individual workouts again, and trying to get guys better. Uh, you don't get to always do that as a head coach because you may be gone at a speaking engagement, but like just being with the guys, I, I don't think there's any, I don't think there's any better way to develop a relationship uh with your players than 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 spending time with them in the gym and then also helping them and and them seeing that you care and that you can hopefully get them better. So uh but from a a coaching style standpoint, I mean, I worked for Robert Corn at Missouri Southern. Those were great days. Uh, he he taught me so much about the profession. He was a Division II coach. I worked for Jay Harrington. He taught me about the profession. Uh, worked for Matt Painter, Coach Katie, uh, and now working for Mac. So, all of those guys are good guys. Um, uh, Mac is Mac has a terrific temperament. To him, um, he's laid back. He's uh, players call him Mac, uh, and I think it's just it's been good because I was in that Purdue system for so long. Um, and then to be able to, and, and the Purdue system is probably a little bit more defensive oriented, and we've probably been. And Mac's system is probably a little bit more offensive uh, oriented, and and the numbers say that. So it's been good to learn, and uh, and then to also help, and and that's I think the biggest thing that I've learned throughout my career. It's it's you, you have to serve the head coach, you have to serve the players, you have to. You have to have a servant mentality, and, and and that's been one thing that I've really enjoyed in my time here at Creighton.
0: So I'm going to tie the Ohio Valley Conference into you know this sort of segment. Mm-hmm. You have Denzel Mahoney who transfers from Semo, and he ends up at Creighton. How big of a asset has Denzel Mahoney been to the Creighton program?
1: Well, I mean it's it's twofold. People always will and when you're on the outside looking in i mean i i lost at the end of my 3rd year when when i got extended at missouri state we we had a really good play and we ended up losing him the next year to a transfer and you you i i remembered when denzel was transferring that's rick ray he's a guy at semo that i yep. that i worked with uh, and that I've known and I understand how hard that was, how, what kind of a devastating blow it's going to be to a program like that. But that's the nature of the business that we're in. So I looked at it a little bit different when guys transfer, it's just like, goodness gracious. Cause I've been on that level. It kills programs um, because like y- you got to have those kind of guys, but sure. Denzel has been terrific for us. He was six man of the year in the big East. Um, I coached against Denzel two times uh, my second to last year at uh, Missouri State. We, we played Simo down there. We won him. and We played him at our place, and he was a freshman, and I just was so impressed with how good he was, uh, and I thought he'd be a terrific player there. But, you know, he, he decided to leave, and he opened it up, and we were fortunate enough to get him, um, and he's been very good for us. He's a guy that can make a shot. Um he can score, uh he can post a little bit, he's got a he's got a good good feel. And I really I really think that he'll he'll take a huge step this year. He was sixth man of the year in the Big East uh last year, uh averaged double digits and I, I think he'll just have a terrific senior season.
0: Well it's great to see him still having because I mean when he was at SEMO as a freshman sophomore, he was getting all these accolades for, you know, all O V C you know freshman of the year, first team, second team, what have you. And it's great to see that he's carried that, you know, into a lot bigger conference and, you know, having a lot of success.
1: Yes. Yeah, he's having success. And I think a lot of times, you know, guys transfer up in the grasses and always greener. Um, but but like Denzel, and he was, he was recruited by some other schools, we felt like our system and Mac's system would be a terrific fit for him. And, and obviously that's happened. He, he's, he's been a really good fit, and he's a matchup nightmare. So it's always good. It's always good. You like to see this. You don't want to see kids transfer, but some, I mean, I, it's going to happen. It's it's inevitable. It's going to happen. But you, you hate to see the stories where a kid transfers and um he gets to his next school and then he transfers again, or he doesn't have the success that he thought he would have. And if you look at the numbers of guys that are leaving lows to mids that are transferring up, you know, how many do truly have success? Uh, You you could argue that a lot of them don't have that same type of impact. Denzel has had a major impact here, and, uh, you know, he's a high major player, and he's fit in well with the system, and we're, we're lucky to have him. So question we like to ask all of our guests, kind of our, our entertainment tonight question, if you will, is <laughs> Chris and I make a trip up to Omaha. We're going to catch a Blue Jays game. What's your top dining suggestion for us, and uh, what should we order? Oh, man, I'm not a big eat-out guy. I kind of fire the grill up. But, like, there are some really... So we're going to oh, Coach my- Luss's house for the grill. <laughs> yeah, we can do that. We can do that. But the the thing about this for me is it, just in my career, you know, I've grown up where I was coaching. It, it's mostly on Midwest small college towns. And right. so to be in a city and to be in a, in the big East, which is all cities is, it's been, it's been a lot of fun for me. You know, TJ, you know, where I grew up, there was one stop sign or one stoplight in New Baden. Right. So it was a, flash there's a one million. Back. Yeah. Yeah. There's a million people in Omaha. So there's, there's great dining uh, options. Mahogany Steakhouse is out west, uh, west of Omaha, and that's probably the best steakhouse. That's terrific. Uh, California Taco is downtown by the campus. That was on Diners Drive-ins and Dives. Think so- I've actually eaten there.
0: Yeah, so, so you-, it, you
1: know, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's there's tons of great places to eat uh, in Omaha, uh, a city of this size. So, yeah, a lot of good places. <laughs>
0: Well I tell you what, Coach Lusk, uh it was great having you on. Uh you've had a very successful career throughout, you know, numerous college basketball conferences, programs, and you know, you keep, you know, working your way up to, you know, larger schools as you go and uh glad to see you've had a you know, a great uh career in coaching.
1: Well, thank you guys. Thanks for having me and I uh, enjoyed the visit and brought up some old memories and, and uh wish you guys all the success. I think you and TJ said this is kind of maybe a new deal or you just started a so good luck and and uh, wish you guys all the best. Alright, thanks coach. Appreciate everything. Bye guys, thanks.
0: Yeah, thank you. And just want to give a special thanks to coach Paul Lusk for taking time this week to uh, join the show and I mean, talk about his career in the Missouri Valley not only as a head coach as he was at Missouri State for a while, but You know, he's, you know, brought that to Creighton. And besides his coaching career, I mean, he had a solid playing career in Missouri Valley as well after coming from Iowa.
1: Yeah, obviously, it's a guy I've known, you know, for as long as I can remember. I think I've known him since like the second grade. He's a few years older than me. And you just got to see firsthand the work ethic of the guy. I remember hanging out at our local gym and some of us are playing. And and Paul was just shooting and came over and talked to us for a little while. And he like, all right, well, I better get going. Well, then he went back to shooting and he was shooting at one rim for a while and he you know, got done with that one and he moved on to the next room. Well, what he would do is that he had to hang the net. You know what I mean? By you shoot just right and the, the net hangs, which he used to do a lot more back then than they do now. He had to hang all the nets before he'd leave. Wow. I mean, not where we were playing, obviously, but the other three, four, five that he's like, he, he, I mean, how much longer does that take you shooting? I and mean, that's just kind of the work ethic he had you know, coming, coming up as a kid, you know, and I know his dad was the head coach at our high school and, you know, it was very much, you know, kind of pushed him and kind of kept him on track. But, uh, well, you know, that's, that's what always stands out to me. I remember when he broke his leg, he broke both bones in his lower leg in his first start for Iowa at Drake. And just the heavy rope work he would do in our old high school gym. I mean, the guy would just be sweating bullets and you're like, good Lord. Well,
0: I mean, as a, as a player and he had that kind of work ethic growing up you can only imagine you know what kind of coach he is you know if if he had that kind of work ethic as a player you can only imagine that that's the that's the kind of work ethic he wants his players to have you know always wanting right. to get better and you know you know not don't take your foot off the pedal you know keep keep working at it
1: yep I, the one thing i took away is like after we talked to antonius you know for our podcast last week and you know i st- said how He talked about the reasons why he didn't transfer. Well, then to hear Coach Lusk talk about, you know, sometimes those guys move up to, you know, from a mid-major to a power five, and they don't necessarily prosper, you know? And it's kind of like that's what Antonios was worried about. And Coach Lusk was like, yeah, you know, from what we see, it's not very often you see a guy transfer, you know, from a mid-major to a power five and become a stud there where you could have been the John Morant at your school. As opposed to you know the guy you know getting solid minutes but still not the exposure you were hoping to get.
0: Absolutely. So I think with what Antonius had said on our podcast this past week, and then what Coach Luss said um, about basically the same topic, I think they both really kind of piggybacked off one another. One another. So I think it was very good to hear that not only a player looks at it that way, but also a college coach sees it like that too
1: yeah i wish i could have been there when he when coach davis was telling him i think you need to go to the nba you must be crazy (laughs) 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 oh man oh it was a good visit though
0: yeah it was it was very good hope everybody else enjoys it as well or did enjoy it uh but with that tj that'll that'll basically wrap up the episode kind of kept it nice and short this week because we had a a nice interview with coach lusk as well uh but you got any final thoughts here
1: Nope, uh, just uh, keep our fingers crossed that we'll have a college basketball season like every week. And, uh, you know, the sooner it can get here, the better.
0: Yeah, I'm with you. Hope, just hope for the best and uh, get ready for, you know, a, hopefully a long and lengthy college basketball season, especially for the NVC and OVC. Yep. But with, with that, uh, well, actually, TJ, do you have any uh, plans for Labor Day weekend? That's coming up.
1: No, got a fantasy football draft. Uh, my son may or may not be coming home for the first time from college. We haven't heard from him in a couple of days, so uh, that'll be interesting to see how much he's changed just in the, you know, three weeks or so since he's been gone. Or we may not see him until Thanksgiving. <laughs> Who knows? Oh. How about yourself?
0: Yeah, I, well, I was trying to go on a golf trip, but that kind of went out the wayside. So I think uh, one of the one of the days going to hit up a, a local casino throw a couple quick 20s in and hope i walk away with more than what i went there with uh that's always the hope gonna play at a golf course one of the local courses i think uh gonna try and play at either tapawingo which is on the missouri side or uh and cool um but other than, well, good luck other than that uh, just looking forward to the weekend So that'll wrap up episode 16 here on View of the Valleys. For TJ Hoover, I am Chris Smith. Thanks for tuning in. Be sure to tune in next week as we roll on with episode 17. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple and give us a follow on Twitter at ViewValleysPod. Enjoy the rest of your week and have a great Labor Day weekend.
1: Have a good one, everybody.